0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Steven Siegel. And today, my guest is historian Jason Lustig. We'll be talking here at New Books in Jewish Studies and New Books in German Studies and New Books in History about his new book called A Time Together: Archives and the Control of Jewish Culture, published by Oxford University Press 2021. Thanks, Jason, for for joining me here in Austin.
2: Thanks. Uh, I'm so glad to be here.
1: So for our listeners here at NewBooks Network, Jason Lustig is a lecturer and Israel Institute teaching fellow at the Schusterman Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's also an affiliate of the History Department. This first book, A Time to Gather, is just out, published by Oxford in December 2021, And it traces the 20th century struggle over who might own Jewish history, especially after the Nazi looting of Jewish archives. I'm delighted to talk to a fellow podcaster. Dr. Lustig is also the host and creator of the wonderful Jewish History Matters podcast. He received his PhD at the UCLA Department of History and has also been a Harry Starr Fellow in Judaica at Harvard Center for Jewish Studies and a Gerald Westheimer Early Career Fellow at the Leo Beck Institute. So thanks, Jason, so much for joining me to talk about your new book today. Thank you so much. So let's get right into the book, A Time to Gather, a book about archives and archival visions. Jason, could you tell us what it what got you interested in the topic to begin with?
2: Yeah, so I have always been deeply interested in the relationship between history and memory, and nationalism, and politics—essentially about how history is put to use in in the present in order to to shape the future. Um, and and kind of at the center of all of these issues is how people have claimed history as their own. And uh, and so when I. Came towards this idea to write about archives and, and to write about the history of, of Jewish archives in the twentieth century and and what it all means. You know those issues became very practical. It's not just about you know how you own history in a metaphorical sense, but in a very practical sense. You know, you, you physically hold this stuff and say, "Look, I have it." Um, and so that was part of the way in which in which I came to it.
1: I'm I'm really intrigued, Jason, in reading through your five chapters and in in how you get into archives and their epistemology the, the epistemes and, and sort of epi- epistemic grounding of archives and archival visions could you talk a little bit about the, the the big argument or one of your big arguments in in the book about the totality of, of archives and the, and the dream of having a complete archive
2: yeah so so when I think about the argument of the book and, and what I'm trying to say in in the biggest terms um, I think that when we look at the development of uh, Jewish archival initiatives and activities over the course uh, of the 20th century, there are, are a number of major themes that kind of tie together what is what is taking place and what is going on. I was struck very early by just how many archives Jews were creating uh, in different places all over the world, essentially all at the same time. And what I was trying to, to indicate in the book is simultaneously this, Process of gathering together materials, as I call it, a time to gather, and, and I can say more about what that means because uh, uh, right. it's actually a quote from uh, you know, from one of the figures who's involved in this whole process. But but it's this impulse to gather together everything, and this is a manifestation of of a whole range of cultural political uh, issues uh, in the early and mid 20th centuries especially around the axis of the Holocaust but also in other contexts as well but at the same time you know as everybody is trying to create their own archives it leads fundamentally to this to this tremendous conflict uh, over who's going to have what where it's going to be uh, what it's going mm-hmm. to mean uh, and so when I when I look at this, the key theme that I see is that that everybody is creating these archives. Uh, you know, in the book I focus on Germany, on the U.S., and on Israel and Palestine. Uh, you know, in those three particular regions, but it also goes beyond it as well. That, that everybody is creating these archives, kind of out of this shared impulse to preserve the past, but it's not neutral. It has a political. Relevance—it has a cultural relevance in their own time because, get, like, having all of this stuff uh, is a signifier of their ability to shape the future. Um, there's much more that I could say about it. I think that 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 one of the other key arguments here has to do with the notion of totality. Uh, you know, Stephen, that you mentioned, uh, which is that that I've identified a series of archives in uh, in Germany, in the U.S., and Israel-Palestine. The three w- main ones being the Gesamtarchiv, the Deutschen Juden, the Central uh, German-Jewish Archive, which was in Berlin, founded in 1903. The Jewish Historical General Archives, which was in Jerusalem, founded initially in 1939, and uh, then uh, opened in uh, uh, officially in 1947. And then uh, basically around the same time in 1947, you have the American-Jewish Archives, uh, which is in Cincinnati. Uh, and so all three of these archives represent this vision of total collecting you're gathering everything uh and and this is tied in with you know specific issues in these three regions but also about what is the future of jewish life uh in the aftermath particularly of the holocaust you know as you have this impulse to kind of bring together the the kind of the forces of jewish life as a whole you have jews being scattered you know you know this kind of the the nature of jewish history right with dispersion in diaspora and 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 uh and this is Giving greater emphasis in the context of the Holocaust, you know, displaced persons and uh, and so on and so forth, and and just as people are trying to 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 bring together the scattered remnants of the destroyed European Jewish communities in terms of people, but they're also doing it in terms of archives. Uh, and so when you look at some of these archival visions, uh, it, it's really very much, especially in the post-Holocaust era, about what does it mean to reconstruct and to rebuild Jewish life. And so these archives. they're not just historical materials, they're also powerful metaphors Mm. for what's going on in terms of Jewish culture in a much broader sense.
1: Yeah. I I like how you frame it in the book um, in light of what you call post-Holocaust restitution. And of course, I'm thinking here as as a Polish historian as well about the looting and destruction of of archives. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the where. So, um, Of course, we're dealing with places like Berlin or Jerusalem, or I think you have a a really interesting chapter on Cincinnati. Um, What are those archives and, and how did those archives as this dream of totality come to be?
2: So, as I mentioned, the three main archives are the Gesamt Archive in Berlin, the Jewish Historical General Archives uh, in Jerusalem, which today scholars of Jewish history are perhaps more familiar with it by its current name, uh, which is the Central Archives for the History of the Jewish People. Uh, they changed their name in the 60s and, uh, and then also the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati. These three archives really stood out to me uh, because they represent three points on a triangle, uh, as it were, between these three different continents, these three different settings, uh, and and there's a very close relationship uh, between them as well. This this goes back, Stephen, to your question about uh, sort of where this notion of totality is coming from. Uh, I uh, identify this kind of beginning in some respects with the gazamt Archive, uh, which mm. was um, interesting in some respects the first professionalized. Jewish Archive quote unquote in modern uh, in modern Jewish history it was established in the early 20th century and uh, you know communities Jewish communities had archives uh, individuals had archives of course uh, throughout history but really the Gazamtar archive is the is, is what I would what I would argue is uh, is the first effort to, to do this in a in a manner that is mirroring the the broader professionalization of archival practice uh, which is mm. actually happening at exactly that same time in Europe uh, in the 1890s and the early 1900s so the Gazamt archive is this effort to to gather together the the Jewish uh, communal archives mostly throughout Imperial Germany and it is the starting point for a whole range of archival projects in other countries in Austria in uh, in elsewhere as well uh, where where people are looking to the Gesamtarchiv as this prime example of what it means to create a, a professionally managed Jewish archive uh, according to the the most recent best practices of the time um, and there's also this kind of broader, way in which the, the Gesamtarchiv kind of stands at the center of this network, just in terms of the people themselves. Uh, the Gesamtarchiv was uh, established under the leadership of Eugen Teubler, uh, who was a, uh, uh, a young German-Jewish historian, actually, of antiquity. Uh, he happened to get the job as the director of the archive, you know, which was dealing with medieval and modern German-Jewish history. And, uh, and so he was the head of this archive, uh, but his assistant, Georg Hurlitz, would go on to create the... Zionist archives, what's now the Central Zionist archives, first in Berlin, uh, and then he immigrated to Palestine uh, in 1933. And then in, in in British Palestine, later the State of Israel, uh, there's a whole cohort of archivists and scholars who are all kind of connected, like Hurlitz, uh, with the uh, the German-Jewish uh, intellectual and scholarly sphere, uh, and even with the, uh, the Gesamt Archive itself. Josef Meisel, who was the, uh, the longtime uh, director of the Jewish Historical General Archives, when it was established in 1939, uh, until the late 50s, he had been the director of the Jewish Library in Berlin. So basically, down the hall from the Gazam Gesamt- mm, archive Hurlitz is on the board. Uh, yeah. You know, so was Alex Bein, who uh, who was a German Jewish archivist of a younger generation who had worked in the uh, in the German state archives uh, in uh, in in Germany prior to uh, the rise of Nazism. You know, so there's this whole cohort of, of German Jews uh, in America as well. It, it, it's just really unbelievable, actually, how this all works out. You have the American Jewish Archives, which is in Cincinnati, uh, and which is established by Jacob Rader-Marcus, who is himself an American Jew, uh, but he studies in Berlin uh, in the 1920s mm. uh, for his PhD, uh, and he is close friends with Teubler and with his successor, Teubler's successor, Jakob Jakobson, who takes over the Gesamt in the 20s, and he also... Uh, is actually in a class with Alex Bine who later on you know Bine becomes Israel's first state archivist in the 1950s so you've got these kind of two figures in different poles right you know of the post holocaust Jewish world right one in Israel and one in the United States who have this deep connection with each other and who are both working to help create archives. Um, and so you see this personal connection between all this network of uh, uh, you know of archives um, but it's also a connection of ideas uh, again this goes back uh, to where, where I started I think of talking about where the idea of totality uh, kind of relates to all of this you know in some respects I think that all archives want to collect everything right you know everybody says they have a collecting policy
1: especially in germany I'd say. yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Right. Everybody, everybody, everybody says that they have a collecting policy you know there are limitations obviously uh you know but uh but i think that the bound up in the entire project of archiving is this vision of at least yeah. getting everything in your subject area right um you know you want like you know it, it and i think that in the the case of the Archive, this comes out very powerfully it's bound up both in the name and the vision of the archive and also in their activities. So Teubler uh, spoke on a number of occasions about his dream to gather the collections of all the communities in Germany. Uh, mm. And uh, and when some of the Jewish communities refused to send their historical materials to Berlin uh, for various reasons that we can talk about, uh, you know, he and his colleagues got very upset about it. Uh, and so so there's this sort of way in which there's this idea of totality uh, built into the Gesamt Archive. I would even argue that the name Gesamt Archiv is probably best translated into English as a total archive uh, in the same way that we talk about uh, Gesamt Kunstwerk. As a total mm-hmm. work of art, um, and uh, um, so there's a lot going on there. So, to emphasize this, I think that what you see is this vision of totality is expanded right. in the post-Holocaust era, uh, where you see these archives in Jerusalem and in Cincinnati, uh, both having these expansive archival visions, which are representative of their own cultural context, but also the the, the magnification, you know, of the earlier idea, uh, which they kind of carried with them.
1: Um, So, Jason, I wanted to pick up on one of your earlier ideas about the professionalization of archives and archival practices. Could, Could you say a few words, perhaps, about how you see this reflected in certain cases or among certain names of people in Germany or elsewhere?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think that this question of professionalization and what it means to create a kind of quote unquote professional archive is actually deeply bound up with all of these instances uh in, in, in the sense that um first of all um i think that there is a uh, a deeply uh, important relationship between the significance of what it means to create a professional archive and uh, the practical reality of what it means to collect things in the first place. So the Gesamt for instance, uh, you know, was established just around the time of the the emergence of some of the first uh, professional archival associations in the Netherlands and elsewhere. And they very closely wanted to follow some of these best practices, uh, you know, yeah. that are codified at the time in, in what's known as the Dutch Manual, which is a archival manual right. produced in 1898 by a group of Dutch archivists, uh, hence the name. Um, you know, but it wasn't just that they read the manual and wanted to do what it said. Um, it's that they they made a contrast, right? They, they, they tried to contrast what they were doing in gathering these things to a quote-unquote professional historical archive in capital letters uh, between uh, what local communities were doing, who they believed were in some respect not preserving historical materials in the way that they should be. So there's this fundamental discord right on a a basic level where you have these scholars you know who are uh, trying to be professional archivists uh, who are saying look you people like you know often communities in eastern germany or you know anywhere else you you don't know how to care for your historical materials if you hold on to them they will fall apart you know no one will be able to look at them and so on and so forth send them to our central archive and this plays out more or less everywhere else right there's this way in which you have these scholarly figures some of whom are trained as archivists, uh, some of whom are not, uh, who are all kind of claiming that th- that their status as professionals makes them uniquely suited to hold and to, and to, and to have these historical materials. So you look, for instance, at Alex Bine, uh who I mentioned mm. briefly before, he becomes Israel's first state archivist in 1956. And he draws heavily on this German archival background he worked at the Reichsarchiv uh, which was uh, actually a military archive in uh, in Potsdam uh, you know starting in 1927 uh, and he actually you know his story is very interesting he you know he he trained as a historian he wrote his uh, his uh, his doctoral dissertation on Alexander Hamilton but he couldn't get a job mm. um, well, and, yeah. and he ends up working at this archive um, and and he really uses this experience at the Prussian archive to bolster his status as a professional archivist so when he comes to Palestine in 1933 he's fleeing the the rise of the Nazi regime he he gets fired from his job you know because of the Nazis uh, and he comes to Palestine where uh he also can't get a job um uh, you mm-hmm. know uh, and uh and he uh, he basically is arguing for the professionalization of archival practice in British Palestine later on the state of Israel uh and so there's this element here where he's Arguing that by bringing this kind of continental European professional archival tradition to the modern state of Israel, you know, he can help to build the state of Israel. He can uh, help to preserve the Jewish past. And I mean, there's much more I could say about it, but but I'll say that there's a parallel uh, in the figure of Ernst Posner, uh, who is also a, uh, a a German archival figure who comes to the United States, I want to say in 1940. He is also fleeing from the Nazi regime. He ends up uh, establishing the archival program uh, at American University, which essentially helps to mm. train the uh, right. you know, sort of uh, an entire generation of American archivists. So there's this whole sort of process of exporting the sort of German archival model, uh, both the United States and, in this case, the State of Israel. Uh, And in the case of the State of Israel, the fact that bion is there and he's saying you know look we are these professional archivists you know and so on and so forth you know it's it's not just this question of status uh in terms Mm -hmm. of like okay do you have a degree or do you not or do you have professional archival experience or do you not in 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 some respects it it doesn't really matter but i think that that it 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 ends up having the significance when you look at the restitution issues where Bein is able to travel back to Germany in the early 1950s and he is talking to German politicians, German uh, archivists and so on and so forth. Some of these are people are people who he knew before the war and who he worked with. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And he That's is able to question. say like, look, <laughs> yeah. we have in Israel, these professional Jewish archives—you uh, know, which right. I happen to be in charge of—and um, uh, and we can care for these materials in a way that nobody else can. Now, of course, there are Jewish archives in America and elsewhere, but Bine is very condescending towards Jewish archival activities in the diaspora, where he basically is arguing that only in Israel uh, is there uh, this professional mm-hmm. archival ethos where we can care for and preserve the Jewish past Uh, and there's a whole dynamic there about the relationship between Israel and the diaspora but my point here is that when you look at this question of professionalization and what does it mean to create a professional archive it is bound up with this question of authority and this issue of of status of saying who has the right to preserve the Jewish past Uh, and there's much more to go into there um, you know but but I think that yeah
1: yeah, I I think that's a great that's a great answer, Jason. And and I'm thinking about Evo as well, and, and you know the digitization that's that's ongoing, or maybe even that's been completed at Evo and some of the other um, points that you make, and you cover um, Salo Baron and and his, you know, sort of project of Jewish cultural reconstruction as well. Um, Could you say a bit more about the American context? We've covered a lot about the German Jewish context and sort of this professional training in the continental tradition. But one of your mid chapters is actually, I think in some ways more diasporic. If I can put a word in your mouth, it, it has to do more with the nation than the state. Um, so, what what is Jerusalem on the Ohio? Is this another example of the ingathering of the exiles, or is is this something else that happened in gathering materials?
2: Yeah, yeah. So let me preface that. Uh, let me preface that um, just with another quick comment about the the archives in Jerusalem, because I think that these two archives are deeply connected. I make this parallel in terms of the time, right? That they both are essentially opening in the late '40s. Almost exactly Mm -hmm. the same time, Um, but but the ideas are are very similar, um, but at the same time, they are in contrast, a very deep contrast with each other. Um, So you mentioned the term of the ingathering of the exiles just to
1: tell us what it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah, just to reference what that is, because it's also central to this to this question of the archives in Cincinnati. Um, so Bain and the other archival leaders in Jerusalem, they're working to to bring uh, archives to Jerusalem that have been stolen by the Nazis for the most part, at least in the, in this initial stage. And they are doing it through restitution channels because this is looted property. Um, and the way that they framed their project is what they called the ingathering of the exiles of the past. So this is a very specific reference to the ongoing project in, in the early 1950s and beyond of, uh, of the newly established state of Israel encouraging the mass migration of, of Jews from all over the world uh, to the newly established Jewish state, in which they called the ingathering of the exiles, which is a reference to the Jewish liturgy. So the archivists kind of played on this and they said, you know, we're not just ingathering the exiles of the Jewish people, but we're also in gathering the exiles of the past. That's kind of part of the context of what's taking place for the Jerusalem Archives. Now, for the Cincinnati Archives, it's a similar context of the post-Holocaust era, but it also has a whole different range of issues. Where, in some respects, Jacob Rader Marcus, who's the the, the founder of the American Jewish Archives and who runs it for almost fifty years. You know, it has a very different perspective as you said kind of a diasporic perspective yeah. um and and so i think um to understand this all to, to explain this you know i'll say just a quick word about marcus and his uh, historical perspective uh, Marcus I'll just say was not an archivist and he never really saw himself as one. he wanted to create kind of a historian's archive uh, he mm. wanted to create a research institution right. um, that was not just about preserving the past but was about serving historians um, you know because you know, he, he was trying to build up the the field of American Jewish history and he wanted to have the tools at his disposal uh, you know literally outside of his front door um, and uh, and so Marcus uh, is kind of an interesting character he's an interesting fellow. So, you know, he um, is, as I mentioned, he's an American Jew. He was born outside of Pittsburgh and uh, um, and he, at a young age, um, moves to Cincinnati. Uh, actually at the age of 15 to begin training as a reform rabbi. At the time, uh, if you mm. wanted to be a rabbi, a reform rabbi um, at Hebrew Union College, which today uh, it still exists, you know, it was established in 1875 in Cincinnati, and today they also have campuses in New York and in LA and in Jerusalem as well, and uh, it's really the central rabbinical uh, seminary for the reform movement uh, in Judaism. And uh, and so at the time, if you wanted to become a rabbi, you you uh, you went essentially in high school uh, and you Mm -hmm. you studied in high school and also in college at the University of Cincinnati at the same time that you did your rabbinical training. So it was like a total of nine years. And uh, and Marcus, uh, he ends up staying in Cincinnati afterwards after he finishes uh, to teach at the at the college. Um, and so Marcus is a lifer, so to speak, you know, he mm, moves right. to Cincinnati in 1911, uh, at the age of 15, uh, and he's there until he dies in 1995. Um, you know, and, uh, and so, um, you know, he, uh, he's kind of this unbelievably interesting character in and of himself. He, he studies medieval Jewish history initially, but, but in the course of the years of the Holocaust, um, he shifts his perspective entirely and he ends up moving towards the study of American Jewish history. Um. And this is where his archive project emerges from. He starts collecting stuff in the 30s and into the 40s. uh, And uh, by the time he gets to 1947 and he establishes his archive, Marcus's archive is a manifestation of his entire cultural and political reorientation as it came to, uh, the Jewish past and the Jewish future. Uh, you know, he shifted from studying European Jewish history to American Jewish history because he believed very strongly that with the events of the Holocaust, that European Jewry was a closed book of history Mm. and that, that, and that he should study what was essentially going to be the future, uh, that is American Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. for him, you know, this idea of studying American Jewish history and gathering Historical materials was deeply imbued with this idea that American Jewry was going to become the most significant and important Jewish center uh, in the post-Holocaust era, uh, and so and so for him, there's this idea. He he's he's not that interested in Israel. You know, in later decades, he kind of. Changes his orientation and and becomes a little bit more Zionist, but he still has these apprehensions that perhaps Israel won't survive. You know, why would you put all these you know uh, these these priceless historical materials in a place that's literally under siege? And uh and and he is more of a believer in in the diaspora as an idea in general, and this manifests itself in his archival project itself, uh, which is to say that. Uh, that the Israeli archivists people like Alex Bine uh Bine's colleague Daniel Cohen who takes over the Jewish historical general archives in the fifties and all of their colleagues, they're all going on and on about the ingathering of the exiles. And Marcus is saying, no, it's better to have these things dispersed. And the term that Marcus used uh, is kind of this strange term. He called it omniterritoriality. Uh yeah. This, this notion that, that, that Jews survived throughout history because they were everywhere. Right. And, and this dispersion of the Jews was the secret to Jewish, Survival, right? This was his his point of view, and so in the same way, he believed that archives should kind of be dispersed. So on the one hand, he is gathering things, obviously, right, but he has this notion as well of the power of dispersion as a force in Jewish history, uh, and also in the Cold War context. There's a whole story here as well where he is suggesting that centralizing things, perhaps is a recipe for disaster he's talking about in the case mm-hmm. of Israel, but also like what's going to happen, you know, he's, there he is working in the 50s, uh, you know, what's going to happen if there's a nuclear exchange with the Soviets? So for him, gathering things to Cincinnati uh, is a representation of a whole range of issues for him relating to the Cold War, relating to his understanding of Jewish history, and also about the possibilities of the Jewish future. And, and, and there's a, a great deal more, which I can speak about as well, that's going on here about Uh, Marcus's sort of sense of Cincinnati as a historic center of American Jewish life, which in some respects seems kind of strange
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, not New York. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, no, but it's this idea of dispersion, right? Jews kind of being everywhere yeah. as opposed to in the place where there happens to be the most Jews.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I wonder if that if that's uh, also a sort of like point of continuity from not just European continental archive practices, but but also from. Zionist history, because, I mean, you're covering in, in your book so many locations. I, I was just kind of like trying to trace the geographies of a lot of these um, central figures in building archives. Where did they go? Where did their expeditions take them? Um, and, and I guess that le- it leads me into the next question. You have an entire chapter uh, about post-war Germany and Jewish archives and, and where Jewish archives should go, if not Berlin. So, you know, I mean, I, my question would be how how is that earlier local history or maybe municipal history that you cover so well um, changed after nineteen forty five or nineteen forty eight or nineteen forty nine in post war Germany? I, I mean, I'm starting to, you know, recall places where, in addition to restitution, there are Jewish communities that are revived, like in Hamburg or other places where um, they're they're not so revived. So it, what does it actually mean in, in, let's say, post-war Germany, Koblenz, Berlin, Hamburg, Frankfurt, those sorts of places from the 40s onward?
2: Yeah, so obviously everything is changing as a result of the Holocaust. When you look at the creation of archives in places like in Jerusalem or in Cincinnati, that, that this is a representation of a sense among Jews around the world that, that European Jewry, you know, fairly obviously had been decimated Right. And and that there was perhaps no future. That was in some respects a consensus at the time. There were, of course, many people uh, you mm-hmm. know, who felt otherwise and who helped to reestablish Jewish communities. And today, you know, you can see a, a very vibrant, if of course, much smaller Jewish community in Germany, uh, also in other countries around Europe. Um, you know, but at the time, of course, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, there's this big question, which is what is the future of Jewish life in Germany and in Europe as a whole? And, uh, and so part of what I'm engaging with in terms of the question of the archives is that the historical materials, it's not just that these are research materials that people can use to write books or or articles or whatever, but that they are symbols yeah. of this question of what is the future of Jewish life after the Holocaust. And so when you look, you mentioned Hamburg, for instance, and, and the other key example that, that I write about in the book is in Worms, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which, is a, which is a very important historic community, uh, one of the oldest Jewish communities in Central Europe. So these Jewish communities, um, you know, The case of Hamburg and Worms are interesting because, again, if you go back to the Gesamtarchiv Archive at the beginning of the story, these two communities were among those that were hesitant to send their materials to Berlin because they had this very strong sense of self-identity as their own community and of their own history and they were like why, why should we send these things to berlin right we should keep them for ourselves so there's always this kind of like local contentiousness over these archives and this manifests itself after the war so in the course of the war the rise of the nazi regime in, in the second world war um the nazis uh somewhat notoriously were these big looters they 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 looted archives and libraries and museums all over europe and particularly jewish ones you know, this, this often you know, gets a lot of attention in terms of the artwork. There are a lot of movies and you know, books and so on that deal with right. those particular dramatic stories. And here I'm focusing on the archives, uh, which don't always get as much attention. Uh, and so the story of, of these archives is that um, they, are, they are stolen or otherwise looted. In the course of the Nazi regime, and uh, and so after the war, there's this whole restitution framework which is set up for the um th- for the return of stolen Jewish property at large. Uh, and so archives kind of fit into into that story. Uh, and so what's going on here, though, is with the archives, um, it's like so who should get them, right? And where should they go? What is the relationship between Jewish communities that are existing in post-war Germany, and and their past? Um, and so I'll just say a quick word. About Worms and Hamburg, just to illustrate this. So Worms is one of the oldest Jewish communities in uh, in Central Europe, uh, stretching back over a thousand years. And so they have all sorts of things. It's really a rich archive. Uh, you know, uh, Worms is also where you have one of the you know a, a number of the great medieval exegetes, the great medieval commentators on the Jewish tradition, uh, you know, who are living like the figure of Rashi. Uh, for instance, mm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. so this is really a storied Jewish yeah. community, and 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 after World War II, you have all of this stuff which which was there, and it's this question of where should it go? And there really aren't very many Jews who, who are left in Worms after after the Holocaust. And you have this very interesting figure by the name of Friedrich Illert, who is the municipal archivist and kind of the head of all the cultural activities uh, in the city of Worms. Who um, uh, he was never exactly a Nazi. He uh, he never joined the Nazi party, even though he kind of worked with the Nazis uh, because he was somewhat of a an opportunist, but he, he never joined the party. And after the war, he, of course, like emphasized this heavily, right? You know, again, somewhat mm-hmm. of an opportunist. He wanted to, to sort of position himself as, as a non-Nazi. But anyway, like in the course of the war, uh, what ends up happening is that he actually steals these archives from the Gestapo. Yeah. It's an interesting story. Yeah. Right. So, so in, in the aftermath, yeah, in the aftermath of, of Kristallnacht, uh, the uh, you know these archives are confiscated by the Gestapo, um, and Illert finds out where they are, and, and he goes and he steals them from the Gestapo, and he hides them in in the municipal archives of Worms uh, for the duration of the war. Uh, so this is archives and other kinds of antiquities, so you know uh, other kinds of historical objects uh, and manuscripts. Um, so after the war, um, Illert sort of is is a deep believer that Jews will return to Worms, and he says these things should remain in Worms until Jews will return. Uh, and so this goes back and forth for many years and eventually it ends up getting sent to Israel. Uh, and the key issue here is that Jews don't come back to Worms, uh, at mm-hmm. least uh, you know not in any kind of numbers. There's like one guy who's there uh, who is a uh you know this this German Jew who returns to Worms and uh, um, and he kind of like stands up for illert and you know there's this whole kind of shouting match actually it, it's kind of amazing you look mm. at the, the minutes of these meetings and uh, and Alex Bein is there they're meeting in Bonn uh, you know with German political figures and illert and the, like you know lawyers and all these things they're debating the, the fate of these archives and uh this German Jewish figure by the name of uh, uh of Eric Meyer he uh, he sort of says like you know like you know I'm a Worms to you know, I fled from the city. I returned. Other Jews will come back. You know, and these archives should stay here. And Binyan kind of st- stands up. Uh, I mean, this this is literally in the notes. It's an amazing story. He Binyan stands up and he screams in his face. You know, how can you like? You know, how can you live with yourself, right? You yeah. know, like you know how how can you you know claim yourself as as a Jew essentially, right? You know, by returning to the scene of the crime, as it were. Of uh, you know of the Holocaust and and so what you see here is this kind of debate about like is there a future of Jewish life in Germany and the materials end up going to Israel uh, in large part because Jewish life does not rematerialize in Worms and in Hamburg it's a different story right so in in Hamburg uh, you, know, you have this this deeply independent Jewish community uh, which is representative of Hamburg itself being a city state right you know it, it has this it has this long history of of independence uh, and and the Jews in in Hamburg you know in, in the early twentieth century don't want to send their things to Berlin. And in the 1930s, uh, the Hamburg Jews actually put their own archives in in, in the state archives of Hamburg in part so that the stuff doesn't go to Berlin. So after the war, it's like, okay, so what happens to all of these archival materials? And uh, the difference between Hamburg and, and Worms is that, that there is a significant Jewish community in Hamburg. In the aftermath of, uh, of the Second World War, it's one of the the larger Jewish communities in post-war Germany. Um, and so there are Jews who are there, and it's, it's also unclear if these were actually quote-unquote looted materials because mm-hmm. they weren't confiscated by Nazi authorities. They were, at least theoretically, given by the Jews to the state archives. But then, of course, the debate is, can you give something willingly, right, in this coercive context of, of the Nazi regime? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So this all comes out in the in these court battles in the nineteen fifties, uh, over what does it mean for it to be looted property and, and so on and so forth. But the central issue here again is about what is the future of Jewish life in Germany. These archives are purportedly about the past, but they are actually standing in for this question of does Jewish life in Germany have a future? And what is the connection between post war German Jewish life and what came before it. So essentially by extracting these archives and bringing them again to Jerusalem, to what's now the central archives for the history of the Jewish people, what you see is this process of essentially arguing that that whatever kind of Jewish life existed in Germany after World War II, essentially didn't have any connection with its past because Mm. the symbols of its past were being removed. There's this whole sort of element of foreclosing on that possibility of connecting with the past. And and there are many elements here where a significant portion of the Jews living in Hamburg, right? I'm calling them German Jews, but for many Jews uh, among them, former German Jews, these were not quote unquote German Jews because you have Jewish displaced persons who had been sort of like, again, you know, forcibly moved into Germany by the Nazis towards the end of World War II as part of the death marches, you know, so on and so forth. For instance, to concentration camps like Bergen-Belsen, which is not that far from Hamburg. And so what you end up with is this very, you end up with this very large Eastern European Jewish population that is in post-war Germany, right, as displaced persons and then some of them who settle in Germany in the aftermath of the war. And so you have a lot of, you know, in this case, we're talking about Israeli archivists, right, who many of them were German Jews, you know, that's where they came from, uh, who are saying, look, these people who are living in Hamburg, they're not even German Jews, right? You know, they're Eastern European Mm -hmm. Jews, right? What is the connection between this new Jewish community and the old one? You know, This manifests itself in very personal terms. I've talked a lot about Alex Bein, you know, who was himself from Southern Germany. uh, But another major figure is Daniel Cohen, another younger german jewish figure he was born in 1935 he, he flees to palestine you know with his family as a child uh and he becomes a, a leading archivist in israel he runs uh the jewish historical general archives uh, from the 50s through uh through the 80s he's from hamburg right so here you have like alex Bein and daniel cohen who are traveling to hamburg in in the 50s and saying like look you know we're german jews right send this stuff to israel uh and and and, mm. and cohen is able to kind of like play on his and, and use his own status as a Jew from Hamburg, right? To say like, you know, these things should go to Jerusalem. And and there's this whole, again, this whole fight is, is you know, it's not just a custody battle, right? It's not about who's going to get it, but it's about yeah. what it's going to represent that, that ultimately, you know, whoever holds these materials is making a claim. They're staking a claim on this idea that they have, an ability to kind of like shape the future. Uh, and and that's really where, I mean, um, we haven't talked about this a whole lot yet, but I talk about archives and the control of Jewish culture. Uh, there's a whole theoretical side to that, which we can get into if we want. Yeah, I, but, but I think that, that ultimately when you look at all of these examples in, in, in Germany, Uh, before and after World War II in Jerusalem and in Cincinnati. There's a lot going on here in terms of the specific histories of the specific archives, but what's really at stake here is about who gets to have control over this material and and thereby, in very symbolic and also in, in some cases in very practical terms, they should have control over Jewish life itself, especially in the aftermath of the Holocaust.
1: Right. I, I mean, I, I wanted to move, actually, Jason, I think this is a good segue in, into some of your big philosophical points about, again, totality, nationalization, professionalization, modernity. I'm thinking about in your conclusion when you're writing about what Pierre Nora said about memory and, and laying claim to memory and memory becoming archival and memory... In, in a sense, becoming archival as, as a way to do history through documents and going to archives and looking at these documents, whether they're, they're institutionalized in a centralized manner or, or not. But I, I wonder if you could talk about these continuities that you see between the analog universe and the digital universe. I, I think this is a, a great contribution in your book. Um, what, what is it in the 20th, 21st century that makes an archive? And what, what is an archive, I guess, is, is the most basic question. But, you know, since you're emphasizing so much of this in, in continuity from the 20th century, where, where do you see the, the digitization projects leaning on these former legacies? Are there specific instances or visions or philosophies that, that, you, seem still, still, that you see as still present?
2: Yeah, I thank you for for bringing up the question of the digital. Uh, I think that 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 one of the questions that we can ask about, say, for instance, the restitution battles of the 1950s uh, is like, okay, so now that we can digitize things, you know, why does it matter who has the originals? Um, And uh, I guess to some extent that that perhaps digitization does make some of those issues kind of a moot point. Um, I would argue that that's actually not the case. Uh, I mean, I think that that part of what we see with the rise of digitization technologies is a couple of things. The first one, and, and this is this is, I think, a really central point they are not necessarily a huge break with the past, right? So, so one thing I didn't say about Jacob Ritter Marcus and his vision of, of uh, a kind of an archive of diaspora, right? This is both an archive of the diaspora, but it's an archive of dispersed materials. He is very interested, you know, this is in the late forties, early fifties in microfilm, right? And, and, and he basically is like running around.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He's obsessed with it. it he's, He's
2: running around basically the entire Western hemisphere. He's not just talking about the United States. He's, looking at North America, but also Central America and South America, where you have some of the earliest Jewish communities in the Western hemisphere, uh, dating back to the early colonial period. You know, so so Marcus is running around, and and even when people won't give him things in the original, he's like, okay, no big deal, I'll take a photo. And, and in some respects, this is very contemporary, right? We think about what it, how historians go about doing their research today, now of course there are many archives that won't let you make photocopies, won't let you take photos for various reasons. But you know here you have Marcus in, in the early '50s uh, actually complaining about YIVO, right? You know yeah. a, one of the premier institutions of of studying Eastern European Jewish history, saying like you know why won't you let us take photocopies? right? You know, like mm-hmm. that's kind of like uh, uh, medieval, right? That's kind of the way he talks about it, right? How can you be in the 20th century and <laughs> and, and, and not yeah. let people take photocopies? And so what you have here is this early, I think you used the word obsession uh, with microfilm. And so what you see here is that digitization is, is an improvement on microfilm in many ways, right? Um, but I think that we can see that people were already interested in talking about Duplicates, uh, even before the rise of uh, of digitization technologies. So that's one part of it. Um, but the thing that I think is really important for us to understand it's not just that there's a continuity, but there is a magnification of the possibilities of what existed before with the rise of digitization. So, like to to illustrate this. Um, you know with with a digitization project that never actually happened um so in the in the mid 80s there uh, there is a uh, an effort to create a kind of a new archive of german jewry this uh this leads eventually to the formation of uh, what's now in heidelberg uh, the the central archive uh sorry forschung der Geschichte der union in deutschland the central archive for the study of the history of jews in germany you know, so this this project begins a few years earlier this 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 is in 1987 and then in 84 and 85 there's this proposal from the German government to to provide resources for the creation of a new German-Jewish archive. And you have a figure of Fred Grubel, who's the uh, the executive director of the Leo Beck Institute uh, in New York uh, at the time, who's like, you know, why... Why create a new archive in Germany? Right? Why, like you know, all of these archival materials relating to German jewelry are scattered, you know, in places like Jerusalem, in New York, in Cincinnati, in London, in all these different places where you have archival materials. Why create a new archive? when you can digitize everything, right? This is year 85 right? mm. he's saying, you know, mm-hmm, you, you, mm-hmm. you can take digital copies of things and create this central repository, which then can be accessed in, in different places. And it's kind of an amazing proposal, you know, because this is prior to the rise of the internet and all these different things and nothing really comes of it, you know, uh, the uh, the Germans are, are not really interested in it and perhaps that proposal was kind of before its time, mm-hmm. just technologically speaking. But what you have here is is this, impl- this, this indication, this very early indication that digitization actually magnifies the possibility of totality, right? I talked about the ways in which like the archivists in, in Germany and, and elsewhere have this idea of collecting everything, right? You know, in, in Jerusalem, it's, it's magnified because now they're talking about not just Jewish materials in Germany, but from all over the world, right? What becomes known as the central archives for the history of the Jewish people as a whole. And, uh, and, and yet in both of these projects, it's, it's impossible. It remains so, um, but when you talk about digitization, you know, perhaps it sidesteps some of these questions of ownership, but it it may, means that now it's possible to have an archive of everything. And we see this like we talk about, you know, kind of moving away from Jewish history for, for a moment. And you look at Google, any number of mm-hmm. these archive projects like the like the Internet Archive uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Genealogy projects. <laughs> right. Right. You know, like Ancestry.com. Right. You know, this tree of everybody. Well, of course, it's impossible. But digital technology invites this fantasy of limitless possibilities right at least it seems to no longer be limited by physical space though of course anybody who who looks seriously and thinks deeply about digital technology understands that it is physical right we talk about the cloud you know this ephemeral thing but it's actually it's actually a bunch of physical servers you know, running on electricity somewhere, right? And so anyway, like to kind of like come back to the, the question of digitization and, and Jewish archives, I think that what we see in terms of digitization projects is a magnification of the fantasy that you can have everything because all of a sudden you kind of can you know, or at least it might be possible because you can take a, a digital copy. This is something that we've seen uh, in terms of like what Evo has been doing. And they actually just quote unquote completed the project uh, in January of 2022. Um, uh, I'm saying quote unquote, because these things are never complete and I'm sure that they will eventually find more materials to digitize. But for uh, the past yeah. seven years or more, they have been digitizing historical materials that Evo had kind of found out about that were in Lithuania. Evo uh, was established uh, you know as the the Yiddish Scientific Institute uh, in uh, in Vilnius uh, uh, in uh, in Vilna uh, in 19 uh, 25 and uh, uh today, you know, the, the main center of Yvo is in New York. It, it relocates uh, during World War II. Uh, and and they end up, again, through restitution, getting a whole bunch of their materials that had been stolen by the Nazis. But a lot of it remained in Lithuania after World War II. And right. so uh, towards the end of the Cold War, uh, they kind of find out that there is all this material in various libraries and archives in, uh, in Lithuania that had once been part of EVO in, in some way. And uh, actually part of the interesting part of the story is that not all of it had been part of EVO. I could say more about that in a second, but essentially EVO uh, tried to get the originals, was not able to do that. Uh, and then uh, in the early 2010s uh, under Jonathan Brent, uh, you know, he uh, he initiated this project supported by the NEH, uh, you know, by the National Endowment for the Humanities to digitize the materials that were in Lithuania and to reconstitute the archive of YIVO as Mm -hmm. it had been before the war, quote unquote. Part of what's interesting about this is that uh, in reality, uh, and I mean, the people at Evo are probably going to hear this and say, he's got it wrong. But I mean, this is, this is my <laughs> take on it, right? Um, and this is what I talk about in the book. Um, ultimately, they are creating a new collection, right? You know, the, the idea of virtual collections, of virtually reunifying dispersed collections is something that digital technologies allow us to do. But part of what is important for us to understand is that digital technologies make it seem like we are reunifying things. But in reality, we are creating something new right and i think that this is kind of central to my point about archives as a whole which is that in this kind of time to gather quote unquote of modern jewish culture people are gathering together the dispersed remnants of the Jewish past, uh, and it, it seems like they are reconstituting something that it used to be. But in reality, it's always a process of creation, creating something new. And and the, the other example of this is the Cairo Geniza. You know where the story of the Cairo Geniza, uh, whether or not it's an archive, is a story for another podcast. Um, but uh, but it's this <laughs> historical, it's this collection of historical materials that was in Cairo to the late nineteenth century. Then figures like Salman Schechter and other scholars brought much of it to the UK. There's this whole orientalist angle to that, right? And what does it mean to literally, as they put it, bring the booty of the Egyptians back mm. to Oxford and Cambridge, right? Um, but anyway, so so this, the story of the Karagoniza is that it really is one of the most significant repositories of materials on uh, medieval Jewish life in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, the world of the Indian Ocean, and beyond. Uh, it's really an amazing resource that yeah. the people have been mining now for 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 many decades and Doing tremendous research, but it's scattered all over the place, right? Um, and so, in the '90s and in the early 2000s, there's this idea to kind of to bring it back together. Uh, and, and this is a project which is still ongoing: uh, yeah. the the Friedberg Geniza project, uh, which again is this kind of amazing resource. Uh, this idea, another at,
1: another digitization project, right? Exactly,
2: right. So, so the Friedberg project initially wanted to create a union catalog of the different Geniza fragments, so you could like kind of like like have a list of like what's in the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York and what's at, you know, Dropsy College now at the University of Pennsylvania, what is at Cambridge, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, yeah. But eventually, once the technology matures, uh, in about 2005 or so, uh, an Israeli computer scientist by the name of Yaakov Shueka comes on board and he helps to develop a project to digitize everything. And uh, and the idea is then to make everything available online. Uh, and in addition to kind of reconnect different fragments. So you might have a document, right? Let's say that you have a letter, right? That was written say in the year 1100, right? And so this manuscript, uh, this this letter, at some point got broken in half, sitting in the Geniza, which is really just a storeroom. Uh, and in the process of these things making their way to various Western universities and other kinds of institutions, Half of it ended up in Cambridge and half of it ended up in New York. So in order to study this letter, you need to literally go to both places and piece together the puzzle. And so, so the, the Freeburg Project has done this kind of really amazing thing where, where they're using computer vision technologies to identify ways to rejoin these things back together. And it's this whole kind of metaphor as a whole for reconnecting the Chirogoniza and recreating supposedly what was in Cairo, you know, prior to uh, to when Solomon Schechter and other Western scholars showed up and, and took it away. And and in here, I'll kind of plug also another forthcoming book uh, by Rebecca Jefferson, which is titled The Cairo Geniza and the Age of Discovery in Egypt, who deals with some of these issues of the, the, the multiple and complex provenances of the Cairo Geniza. So like part of what I'm arguing here in my book is that you look at the Friedberg project and you look at the... Uh, like this effort to recreate the Cairo Geniza, well, you can't put the pieces back together again. It's actually creating something new. And, And this is partially because they actually include things that were never part of the Cairo Geniza beforehand. So part of what is going on here when you look at the history of these archives, ranging from the Gesamt Archive to the reconstruction of the Cairo Geniza, is that everybody is talking about bringing back together the fragments of Jewish life, but it's not actually possible to do that. You're always in the process of creating something new. What that represents and what that means is that the, the, the gathering of archives, this kind of shared impulse to do all of these things is fundamentally contentious because it is never just about the past. It's always about what the future might hold. That is really like what's central to this book as a whole. And we see archives as not just being these neutral repositories where we put things and the scholars go and they sit in these dusty reading rooms. And But in actuality, all of these projects, just like the study of history as a whole, is deeply imbued with this question of who gets to control history, who gets to tell the story, who gets to have access to it. You you look at these digitization projects, right? It seems like it's making everything accessible. And to some degree Mm. it is, especially in our current COVID age, like it's not so easy to travel to archives, something like the Freeberg project or Leo Beck's initiative to digitize their materials uh, and, you know, Evos as well, certainly makes it easier to do research, you know, when we can't really travel so much. Um, But it's not simply democratizing history. It's also another way of controlling the past, right? Because you still have kind of a central point of failure, right? Of like, what happens if their servers go down, right? You yeah, know, that's uh, a great point. <laughs> and so on and so forth. Now, of course, you would think that they, and I, I would hope that they have backups. Um, but my point is that, that digitization kind of masks these earlier issues, which are still there right? It still matters yeah. who holds these materials, who gets to say that it's under their banner, right? It's it's, it's literally on their website, right? And so on and yeah. so forth. And I think when we talk about what it means to have archives in the sure. control of Jewish culture is that ultimately the process of gathering archives is a question of control. It's a question of ownership. But in the end, you know, part of the big question is, can anybody really own history? I'm not really sure anybody really can.
1: Well, I, I think, Jason, that's a really great place to end in, in thinking about how we began in in Cairo or how you began in your book and and the multiple historical societies and and communities um, for Jewish life that that pre-existed, not not only the state of Israel or the Holocaust, but but also state archives when they began to be formed or professional historical organizations at the end of the 19th century. Um, It's a really great way of thinking about decentralization Um, And and who owns the past? So I I want to thank you for joining me in conversation here to talk about your new book. Um, We've been speaking with Jason Lustig, historian at the University of Texas at Austin. His new book is called A Time to Gather, Archives and the Control of Jewish Culture, just out published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thanks again, Jason, for joining us here today.
2: Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure.
1: And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books Network. Until next time. With lucky landslots,
2: you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?